from the bubbling tar pits under the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it is time for another impaired episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. What can you do when you discover that a previous owner left behind a bunch of old railroad ties in your yard? I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and on today's show, I'll try and suggest some creosote corrections and explain how sunflowers might help save the day. Plus, important news about compost and lawn fertilizers and your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and luminously laconic lamentations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you turning a poisonous pond into a nice place to relax on a warm summer night. Right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, because they still haven't caught on to me yet, cats and kittens. And we have a very interesting show for you today. What, all the other ones were boring? What am I doing to myself here? Anyway, in the question of the week, we're going to talk about a common problem that really doesn't get discussed enough. Uh, The poisonous creosote used to preserve old railroad ties that always seem to find a way into people's organic gardens. We're going to tell you how to remediate that soil and remind you not to touch it. We're also going to talk to our old friend Jake Chalfin from Laurel Valley Soils about an exciting new law that has been passed in Pennsylvania restricting the use of chemical fertilizers. That's a lot to get done, so we be hopping, hopping right to your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Margie, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, nice to talk to you. (laughs) It's nice to talk to you, Marge. How are you doing? Doing good. This is just awesome. I love your show, and that that you're the guy I didn't figure this question could be answered by. So, <laughs> what's your location? Uh, in Chapman, Bath, uh, PA. Oh, I was going to say in England. I've been to Bath. You know. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Try to stump I, the chunk. Um, have been trying to grow loofah uh, for the past two seasons, mm-hmm. and the. First season, we had beautiful plant. It got really big and tall. It had nice fruit. Um, but then when it came time for the dry out, it was rainy. It was Pennsylvania cold. And they all pretty much turned to mush. So then I brought like two of them in and I tried uh, drying them on a shelf in our unheated garage. It's actually a Quonset hut, but um, not many people know what that is. (laughs) Um, So anyway, um, those didn't do well either. They got nasty, moldy inside. And so this year we tried starting the plants earlier. Good. Um, They grew 
And they waited till, you know, the end of August, beginning of September to start pushing their flowers. Hmm. And then, yeah, it was That seems weird. unusual. I know. We, we had them in the same sunny, well-drained spot and just... It just waited till as late as possible to start doing. Yeah, and, and then, then guaranteed there's not enough time to mature the fruit. So right. let's back up. Are we okay. growing in raised beds or flat earth? Uh, flat-ish earth, but we've mounted it with uh, compost and horse manure. And, okay, ding, ding, ding. Um and when you say mounds, you're planting uh, the starts in a mound, in a hill? I, we, we started them in pots and then transferred them um, into the mound to grow up okay. Okay. like a trellis. Two things right away. Mounds okay. and hills are ridiculous. I don't... <laughs> I'm sorry. One of the... No, go ahead. One of the differences, I believe, between myself and other garden supposed experts is they're repeating stuff from books. Okay. And it is whisper down the lane. It is nobody thinks did this first person know what they were talking mm -hmm. about? Why would you <laughs> hill up potatoes, for instance? That only exposes the tubers to light, which makes them toxic. Why would you grow gourds in a hill when the top of the hill is always going to be bone dry while it may be too moist at the bottom? So okay. you want to do this again. Why don't you make, just for giggles, uh, why don't you make a little raised bed, like a two-by-two, two, a four-by-four, and where it's all level, filled with compost, topsoil, and perlite, and okay. see if that doesn't help you. Now you said okay. you said you fertilized with horse manure. Yes, there's a lovely horse farm up the road that we can visit whenever, and they they share, and you just give a donation. So it's like, yay, a win! <laughs> ah, you're paying them to. All away their trash. Oh, dear. <laughs> Rule number one. Just because mm -hmm. you have a lot of something doesn't mean it's the right something to use in the garden. Horse, okay. horse manure provides nitrogen and very little mm -hmm. else. Nitrogen grows big plants, but it inhibits okay. flowering. So oh. you, your plant did not start to flower until a lot of the nitrogen had degraded. Where's your compost coming from? Uh, our compost is what we make, uh, long clippings, leaf debris, things like that. Um, and then the horse manure, like I said, comes from a horse rodeo farm up the hill from us. Okay. Um, why are you incorporating grass clippings? Uh, near where the pile of grass clippings go. Uh, we don't bag up. We have a pretty substantial little bit of land. So um, it would be like a zillion bags of grass. <laughs> and then we just which felt is, it was like wasting it. Which is why we don't collect grass clippings. 
we use a mulching mower to pulverize the clippings that then are returned to the lawn. They are the best lawn food. They're 10% nitrogen. That's about as high Mm -hmm. as you could get in an organic lawn food. And you don't have to collect anything. You don't need bags. Um, Lawn clippings are not the best thing in a compost pile. Um, But it is foolish to remove them, especially if you're then going to feed the lawn. So what, what I would suggest is, yeah, shred up all the fall leaves you can and mix in spent coffee grounds. Um, if, you, okay. if you don't drink coffee, you can get them in the five-pound bag at Starbucks or any other coffee shop. It, it keeps it out of the waste stream. And the combination of shredded leaves and coffee grounds makes the best compost, and it makes it fast. Um, I would suggest, <clears throat> since we want to get these gourds, that you isolate the horse manure and use it on non-flowering plants. Sweet corn, field corn, um, asparagus, anything that is not flowering where we want a fruit from it. Now, now for those, now for those who, (laughs) Halloween isn't Mm -hmm. over, is it? No, I have my son, and my dog is now trying to bark at a squirrel. <laughs> okay, good. Tell yeah. him to get him. So yeah. loofah gourds, for those who don't know, they are, when they are young, they are edible gourds. Um, you can eat them. You can eat the flowers, for instance. Um, you don't want to, well, you know that, You can tell if a flower is male or female uh, if it has a little bump behind it. The female flowers have that little, like, marble thing underneath the flowers. The male flowers are straightforward. So if you got a lot of flowers on the plant, you can eat the men. And so if you want to just grow gourds, you just grow gourds. To get a loofah gourd, to get to the point where it changes into a usable sponge, and these sponges are great. Um, it mm-hmm. needs 120 days. Okay. So your idea of starting early is very valid. Um, nothing you can okay. nothing you can do if it rains at the end of the season. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can you think of when that happens in a vineyard? And all the grapes get moldy, you've lost the whole year's crop. So part of this is you're always rolling the dice, but start them early, give them a flat raised bed to grow in, no more manure, and the odds are with you. Okay. All right? And like, um, yes, that's awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You take care and good luck next year. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs.
bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug. One little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug. One little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind you to keep collecting and shredding those wonderful free fall leaves for mulch and compost making. Sure, leave lots of leaves out in the woods, but collect and shred the ones that land on your landscape. Because nobody, nobody ever got to August and said, oh man, I wish I had saved fewer leaves. I'm totally shredded, Mike McGrath. And you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, creosote is a nasty actor, and it is the material used to preserve old railroad ties, which people love to try and put in gardens. So we're going to try to get them to stop doing that and talk a little bit about how to remediate soil that's been contaminated with the creosote. We'll also take a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. But right now, it's time to bring on our special guest, our frequent guest, our old friend, Jake Chalfin from Laurel Valley Soils, who sent me an exciting um, news release uh, the other day. And I'm surprised I didn't hear about it from um, any other sources. Uh, Well, first of all, Jake, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. Great to be back. It's great to have you back. Now, you sent me a copy of the Pennsylvania Fertilizer Act. Is is this proposed or is this law now? So uh, Governor Wolf uh, signed it into law on July 11th of this year. It's uh, sorry. It's Act 83 is what it's called. Act 83. Now, you and I know that Virginia and Maryland crafted similar laws quite a while ago, at least a decade ago, right? Yes, and there has been many proposed laws uh, in Pennsylvania for for many years now. There was a consensus that something needed to be done, but there was no consensus on how to do it. And uh, they finally uh, got a bipartisan uh, agreement. Uh, Some things were left out, but it was a major step forward and hopefully they'll be able to strengthen this this bill and improve upon it in the years to come. Now, in Virginia, where else did I say? I've lost myself already. Maryland, and I believe New York is a pretty restrictive uh, policy as well. In uh, Virginia and Maryland, 
uh, there was a great drive uh, to implement these new laws to help clean up the Chesapeake Bay, which is greatly harmed by uh, fertilizer pollution. And the acts in those states um, greatly limited the amount of nitrogen that could be applied to a lawn, um, greatly limited the timing on when you could apply nitrogen yep. to a lawn. And they essentially said, stop using phosphorus. The lawn doesn't need it. Exactly. And, and that has had very good results for the Bay. Now, I can tell that this was crafted uh, by politicians from my native state because it makes almost no sense. <laughs> it goes back and forth. It's full of loopholes. Yeah. Um, but uh, basically, it's trying to say the same thing. Although, it to me, it's allowing more phosphorus than it should if, if, if it's designed to protect our waterways. Yeah, it's definitely um, not as strong um, or as comprehensive as uh, I think many had hoped. Um, but it, it's still an improvement on the you know, what, what was before this. And, uh, you know, the, the main, uh, points that this, uh, bill covers is, um, applications, uh, in a proximity of water. So they want you to, uh, not apply anything closer than 15 feet from a water source. Um, but then, as you mentioned, the, the loophole there is if you have a spreader, a drop spreader or a, a, a rotary spreader that has a, a fender, uh, you can you can apply closer uh, as long as, as the application is kind of controlled where it falls. They do limit uh, nitrogen uh, in the wintertime, um, but they don't ban it. Um, they just reduce the, um, the, the pounds per, per square foot. And Well, wait um, a minute. I'm going to challenge you there. Uh, under yeah. number six, conditions and date restrictions... No person may apply fertilizer containing nitrogen or phosphorus to turf at any time when the ground is frozen to a depth of two inches or snow covered. No person may apply fertilizer containing nitrogen or phosphorus to turf after December 15th and before March 1st. So that's pretty specific. Yes, um, but that, then it goes on to say that um, those the restriction is based on a certain uh, pounds per square foot, um, but I believe that the, the loophole is um, if you have um, 0.5 pounds, um, you, you can you can apply it. And then there's another loophole that says if it's a um, enhanced efficiency um, fertilizer, meaning uh, it's been uh, designed to be a slow release fertilizer. Um, then you have more leeway when you can use that as well. Now, before we move on to where you come in um, with solutions, um, are there any penalties? I don't see any. Uh, yes, I don't believe there are. Um, you know, there was definitely uh, interest in having, um, you know, applicators uh, become, um, uh, say, uh, I'm not sure if it's licensed, um, uh, you know, certainly uh, turf professionals are licensed, but um, homeowners are not. Uh, there was some, some discussion about, you know, creating more, uh, um, 
more licensing, which then, you know, if there was a license, then there could be enforcement. Uh, but in, in this case, uh, there wasn't any uh, you know, licensing restrictions put on there. Uh, so there, there really isn't a place for enforcement. I mean, I can see it has a good intention. Uh, but what you are doing, your company, Laurel Valley Soils, is promoting this as finally a reason for turf professionals um, to stop putting chemical salts on lawn and start feeding them naturally with compost, right? Precisely. Yeah, it, I think, you know, as as it becomes more restrictive to put the, the kind of classic, you know, petroleum-based fertilizers and chemical-based fertilizers, um, you know, while it's not a ban, it's just it's getting more and more complicated, which, you know, incentivizes people to look for alternatives. Um, it's a shame. I mean, the alternatives have been here all along, and they are very effective. But, you know, it, it, sometimes it takes, uh, you know, these types of bills to, to really get people motivated into exploring their options, which there are plenty of. And compost, uh, you know, is, is a really perfect option uh, for, for both turf, lawn, vegetables, and, and even conventional uh, farming. You know, anybody, compost is great. Anybody out there who has ever applied an inch or two or compost uh, to their cool season lawn in the fall found out immediately in the spring what they had been missing. Uh, yes. And many times, uh, especially when you have a mild fall, like we just had, uh, you'll see, you'll see green up, uh, start almost right away. And, and, uh, the field will stay, stay greener through the, through the winter even. Um, but certainly bounce back much quicker in the spring. Um, and, uh, you know, the organic matter, uh, also, um, sort of, provides a bit of a, a blanket, you know, allows that soil to warm up quicker in the spring as well. Oh, it increases the biodiversity of organisms in the soil. The grass grows deeper roots. Its color improves. I mean, you're not going to notice anything except the improvement. Yes. I mentioned earlier that there are some leniences provided for highly engineered, you know, what they call enhanced fertilizer, slow-release, expensive, highly engineered uh, fertilizer. But Mother Nature's always had that one figured out. Compost is naturally a slow-release fertilizer, um, and there's been studies shown that you know one application of, of compost will provide the continual N, N P, and K for for up to four years. So it's there, but it's bound up um, and is only released as much as the plant signal it needs it. You're Sorry. not forcing chemicals down their throat. The poor little grasses, they're getting to eat when they're hungry. Exactly. There's a beautiful conversation that's had between uh, the, the root system um, and the, the hyphae and uh, mycelium and all the biology in the ground. And when the plant signals uh, that it's hungry, um, the, the, um, the biology in the soil goes to work to uh, dissolve that bound up uh, fertilizer from the compost uh, and, and make it soluble uh, so that the plants can absorb it, but only the amount that the plant needs. The rest of it uh, is left to be until the plant needs to feed again later. Now, Jake, uh, Laurel Valley Soils specializes in a lot of different mixtures. And I love what you say in your accompanying release, that if you are a lawn professional and you want to try this, we'll try to pair you up with the right kind of compost. Quote, think of us as the match.com of compost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um Basically, um, there are
are many different ways to apply compost. And, and you know, compost traditionally has been a little bit um, challenging in, in how to apply it. You know, it is a, it's a bulky product and it does take some uh, elbow grease and some physical effort to, uh, to top dress a lawn. And uh, for some people, that was a non-starter. So we've come up with a couple of different blends that can be applied using um, different types of equipment. So we have a, a turf dress compost that's designed to go through um, a, a mechanical spreaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a cyclone compost that's designed to go through uh, mulch blower trucks. There's a lot of uh, landscaping companies that have these tow-behind blower trucks that blow mulch um, onto uh, kind of commercial landscape beds uh, in the spring. And there's really no use for those machines uh, after that. And we've come up with a compost that is light enough that it can be blown through these mulch blower trucks. Uh, and so those, those landscaping companies can then do uh, commercial applications of, of top dressing compost uh, with, these, with these machines. Um, so it's opened up a whole business uh, f- for the landscaping companies. And, and uh, if you think about like homeowners associations and developments where you've got a lot of houses and tiny little lawns, interrupted by sidewalks and trees and driveways. It's a traditionally challenging place to, to top dress, but with, with uh, the ability to blow the compost on, uh, these landscaping companies can do you know, large developments quite efficiently, and, um, and now the, the, you know, these communities can be m- more sustainably managed. We also have compost soil blends. So you know, say you have a sports field that uh, had a couple of rainy football games on it and there's some really bad divots and some worn out areas, uh, the compost enhanced soil can be uh, top dressed on there to fill in the divots and smooth out the surface so that it's safe again um, and, and so many other uh, options as well. And when you were on the show last time, you quote brought with you images of a whole bunch of new uh regular landscape-sized machinery uh, for doing this. Yeah, so um, there's been some, uh, you know, equipment uh, that has come to the marketplace uh, recently that um, is designed for um, either smaller landscapers or uh, homeowners, and you can rent these at uh, some of your local uh, equipment rental stores. Um, One of the pieces of equipment is called an Eco Lawn. Um, There's another company called Earth and Turf, (laughs) <laughs> uh, that makes them, but but basically they're they're tiny little top dressers that are are motorized. I think basically have a lawnmower engine on them, and they are are self powered, and they hold about a quarter yard of compost. And uh, so you can basically uh, you know shovel the compost into the little hopper and drive it around your front and backyard, uh, almost the same as you would you know a walk behind lawnmower. Oh, um, that so, sounds great. Yeah, the, the beauty of that is you're not, you know, trying to perfectly rake a, an entire lawn in with, with uh, wheelbarrow loads of compost. And, and not only is it less work, but it, it provides a much smoother pattern, a much more even application. But, Jake, I have to reinforce that when I helped my local church uh, reinvigorate their lawn, with a couple of tractor trailers of compost, <laughs> we did use rakes and wheelbarrows and and many Boy Scouts. And when we f- were finished, it really hadn't been that hard uh, a work. The compost vanished. You didn't see it. It wasn't like you had dirt all over your lawn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, you know anything we can do to make the application process easier. 
just entices more people to 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 try it and, and get get into the program. But yes, um, by no means is it impossible to do it without the new specialty equipment. People have been doing it for a long time, the old fashioned way with wheelbarrows and rakes, and it works perfectly well. You can have fantastic results. And, you know, kids need to earn their allowance somehow. Right? So, <laughs> That's uh, right. Whether it's your kid or the neighbor's kid or, or you know, uh, some Boy Scouts, you know, are, are looking for some community service, um, you know, wheelbarrows and rakes are a fabulous way to, uh, you know, add compost to the landscape. But I love this idea of taking the mulch blowing trucks. Uh, which are doing a great disservice to the environment by killing trees and turning them into agents for good by uh, blowing the compost around. That's that swords to plowshares. You know, we, we've done some really exciting projects that probably couldn't have been done without the blower trucks. Um, they're very efficient and good for accessing uh, steep slopes that uh, have erosion problems. And so blowing compost onto a steep slope uh, to enhance the organic matter and improve root structure um, is a great way to um, prevent erosion, uh, you know, in those environments that you know, traditionally you wouldn't be able to access it with, with, with uh, people or equipment. We've done a couple of um, really nice historical cemeteries with these um, blower trucks because with, with grave sites, you know, there's just not a lot of room to, there's a lot of grass, but there's not a lot of room to maneuver between the, the grave sites. Mm -hmm. And uh, blower trucks do a fantastic job um, efficiently top dressing all the green space in the cemetery. So we've, we've actually seen uh, more and more cemeteries uh, adopting uh, compost top dressing. Uh, well, I would like to see one of these trucks in the inventory of every landscaping company in the United States. It is really good news and you know furthers my hope that compost will become more and more accepted every year and you're always keeping us up with what's happening jake been uh preaching uh the benefits of compost for a long time I, we've sort of hit an inflection point uh, or i should say the equipment has caught up with the knowledge base and uh, you know it's a lot more economically feasible now than it's ever been before compost you know at the end of the day it should be used because it's 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 more environmentally friendly. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a bottom line to be managed, and I think we're at the point where uh, organically managing uh, turf fertility and maintenance uh, with compost is on equal playing field with with uh, kind of conventional uh, fertilizer. So that, that we're in a really good spot now that people can really take advantage of that and do the right thing for their you know the the properties that they're managing. All right. Well, thank you, Jake. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. The website is laurelvalleysoils.com. And you go there, you'll see all sorts of informative articles, and you can read up about the different compost blends that are available. Hopefully, we're turning the corner on this, pal, you and me. All right. Happy holidays, Mike. You too. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take another little break and remind you once again to make sure you get your flu shot and COVID booster. We're already beginning to suffer seasonal effect disorder from the lower hours of daylight and longer hours of darkness. 
So take steps now to not get sick on top of all that and make your personal life even more miserable this winter. I'm your Sturgeon General, Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in the Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, Creosote is a nasty actor, and it is the material used to preserve old railroad ties, which people love to try and put in gardens. So we're going to try to get them to stop doing that and talk a little bit about how to remediate soil that's been contaminated with the creosote. We'll also take a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. 888-492-9444. Laura, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello. Hello, Laura. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. And where is Laura doing just fine? In East Texas in Hughes Springs. Okay. Are there springs? Yes, there are. Okay, that's yes, good. Yes, we have a natural spring in the middle of town, as a matter of fact. Oh, cool. Uh, it, uh, uh-huh. Do people collect water from it or anything? They can, if they wish, yes. That would be neat. Is it in... Uh, is, it's in the it's in the park in the middle of town. And is it like in a little fountain or something? Yes, yes, uh-huh. Oh. Under a gazebo. All <laughs> right. Laura in East Texas with her own spring. What can we do you for? Well, um, I stumbled across something that I was totally unaware of. I wanted to share with your listeners because I listen to you all the time. I have a hobby blueberry farm and I do it all organic, but I've been having trouble with gophers. I can't use poison. I wouldn't anyways. Um, I cannot stand trapping them. It horrifies me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I I got to look and, and uh, checked on Google, and in the 1800s, I, I wondered what the farmers used to do about the gopher issue, and they put up owl nesting boxes. Oh, that's amazing. And I had, never, I had never heard of it, and I mentioned it. I belong to the Linden uh, Texas Garden Club, and the ladies there hadn't heard of it either, and I thought, oh, I need to call uh, Mr. McGrath and tell him about the owl boxes. And you're supposed to build the owl box according to the type of owl that is in your area. And, it, and it'll tell you on the internet, you know, uh, the d- dimensions, or you can order the owl boxes and face them the direction it tells you. That is the number one predator for a gopher. And the number one predator of voles, V-O-L-E-S, and also mice. And, and rats. Um, mm-hmm. It depends what that. Now we're getting to we. You must have some big owls. Of course, everything's big in Texas, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, I, I just found it so interesting because I had never heard of it before, and because um, I don't like to use anything, I like the all natural. So um, 
I just wanted to share it with your listeners because I was shocked because I had never heard of using an owl. And you can order the boxes online. They actually sell them. The oh, nesting yeah. Boxes. Yeah. Um, putting up nesting boxes all over farmland used to be uh, absolutely normal. I mean, it was part of farming, not only for owls who prey at night, but for um, meat-eating birds during the day. Yeah, I was surprised that such a simple solution. Oh, no, all solutions are simple. It's people who are complicated. Yeah, you got that right. (laughs) So one year, my church asked me to help restore the grass in their graveyard. And I did that with the help of a couple hundred million Boy Scouts. Then they came to me and said they had all these little holes in the new grass. And I looked at them and I could tell right away they were, quote, vole holes. And voles are tenacious. They're they're tiny. They're the size of a house mouse. Um, But I did some research and found something very similar to yours. Uh, You put up a crossbeam six feet off the ground with as long... uh, a beam on top as you can fit, and the owls will roost on that cross beam at night and hunt the voles. And we know this works because the ground is going to be littered uh, with owl scat uh, pellets showing what's left of their prey. And I always leave snags on my property. We're heavily wooded out back. So when I have to take down a tree, I make sure they leave a good six to eight feet of it standing, and it gets uh, colonized by owls, woodpeckers, all sorts of beneficial creatures. Now, do you know... I've got... uh, Do you know what what kind of an owl uh, that preys on your gophers? Screech. It's a screech owl. And we have 48 acres, and the majority of it is in old trees. Mm-hmm. And when we have one die, we don't touch it. We let we let the animals house up in them. So we don't touch our dead trees. Yes. And gophers. We just, we just leave them. Yeah, gophers, you know, I've gardened in California. I've gardened in uh, Pennsylvania. I've gardened in New Jersey. I've gardened in Virginia. But I ain't ever had no gophers. But I hear that they are just oh, they're awful. incredibly pestiferous. Yes. So I endorse your idea. The more nesting boxes, the better. I would suggest you also try the crossbeam idea. I will. I had not heard of that either. Because the, the boxes are a place for them to live, but the crossbeam is a place for them to perch. And they're going to do much better work if they can perch and wait out the, uh, the varmint of choice that day. I will also, and I also, I, I also solved my ant problem in the berries. I had a 98-year-old lady. I said, well, what did you do for the ants, you know, when you were growing up? And she said, it's very simple. You have a bucket for your berries. You have a bucket for the berries that are on the ground. She goes, you have to clean up around your plant as you go. That's right. And, and, and that's, that solved my ant problem. She goes, people are lazy. Well, it's not that. They just don't understand the mechanism. Ants will not crawl up on a plant and eat the fruit, but they will gorge themselves on damaged. Another simple solution. (laughs) One last thing about gophers before I let you go. Uh, My old co-worker at Organic Gardening Magazine, Jeff Cox, moved out to California. He learned quickly to travel around with a burlap bag and a snake git. 
um, in his car. And whether, whenever he would see a big black snake sunning itself on the highway, he'd use the git to get it into the bag, and then he'd drop it right down the gopher hole. <gasps> what a great idea. I got lots of snakes here. Okay, well, you know, make your snakes happy. And you, and your gophers Absolutely. unhappy. Absolutely. I will definitely do that one. Yes. All right. Well, it's great talking to you. Thank you for uh, bringing up owls. We haven't talked about owls in ages. And, um, you know, have a nice winter. Well, thank you so much. I just wanted to share what I had learned about the owls with your listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. As promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we're either calling cringing over creosote and or is creosote the cause when grass won't grow. Colin writes, Dear Mr. Mike, my family purchased a wonderful house in Oklahoma City, mostly because of the amazing backyard. However, the previous owner lined the fence with oozing railroad ties, and now we can't get any grass to grow within six feet of that fence. We removed the logs of death before planting sod and seed. Now the dogs are constantly tracking mud and failed lawn debris into the house. Could the soil be contaminated? If so, how can we neutralize it? My lawn guy is stumped as well. So I asked Colin a couple of pertinent questions about timing and seed selection. Here's his reply. We sodded fescue in mid-April, overseeded with more fescue in May, and then seeded Bermuda grass in early June. The area is mostly shaded by the fence and our neighbor's 50-foot-tall oak. The tree's trunk is 20 feet from the fence, but we still get a constant sprinkle of acorns. Grass will sprout, but will not mature or withstand a mowing or two. The rest of the lawn is very healthy, and we use an organic weed and feed service whose employees are also stumped by our failure to grow anything along the, quote, muds of Mordor. The dogs use other grassier areas as their preferred relieving spot, just in case you were thinking of them as a culprit. Thanks for your help. Okay, here's my first thoughts. Fescue is a cool season grass that should only be seeded in early fall. But fescue sod that is applied in April should thrive. On the other hand, Bermuda is a warm season grass that should be planted in the spring. I say planted as opposed to seeded because Bermuda is typically installed vegetatively uh, by putting little plants in the ground, just like zoysia grass. Anyway, your soil is almost certainly contaminated with a witch's brew of toxins from the creosote used to preserve those railroad ties. They've probably been leaking that nasty stuff into your soil for who knows how many years. I think it's really important that you keep dogs and humans away from that area by erecting a temporary fence and watch the dogs for any signs of illness or lethargy. Dogs and cats have soft paws that easily absorb contaminants. Blood tests for creosote are somewhat problematic as, quote, creosote 
is actually a complex mixture of chemicals that, according to a fact sheet from the state of Virginia, contains at least 300 different toxins. It is not a single element like lead or cadmium. So explain your situation to your vet. They may choose to run some tests on your pooches or send you elsewhere for a more sophisticated exam. Now, creosote is a, quote, restricted-use pesticide, meaning that it can still be used to treat railroad ties, telephone poles, and even oh, the wood used to make some log cabin homes. Yikes. It is a known cancer causer and is especially dangerous to chimney sweeps who clean the highly flammable material off the insides of wood stove pipes and chimneys. Technically, homeowners should not be able to buy it. Now, this material can be processed from the wood of the, quote, creosote bush, also known as chaparral, which is not a single plant, but a community of like-minded plants that thrive in the torrid deserts of the southwestern U.S. The plants are highly aromatic and highly flammable. But the majority of creosote comes from coal and its residues, especially, quote, coal tar, which in very small concentrations was, and in some cases still is, used as a remedy for psoriasis. Increase the percentage, however, and you do not want to know what kind of cancer you're inviting. Reputable sources report that creosote-laden products are somewhat to totally illegal to sell to homeowners, but huge piles of used railroad ties remain for sale at far too many big box stores. Criminality without enforcement is just a grease mark on the wall. Okay, remediation. It sounds like the area is also constantly wet, so improving the drainage using drain tiles or frequent aeration should be your first step. Then, move on to physical removal. Many companies perform this task for lead-contaminated soil. They dig it up and take it to a specialized incinerator for disposal. Then you'd be starting with at least a much lower concentration of creosote. But what then? I'm thinking that installing a concrete slab over the excavated area might be the best solution. Concrete that is stamped and colored looks great. That's my patio outside. Have it cover a larger than necessary area and put a grill, a table, and some chairs out there to enjoy the long outdoor entertaining season you get in OKC. That big tree might even provide some shade. Otherwise, the Hail Mary pass here would be to drain the area and then install plants that take up large amounts of toxic material. Now, because matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed, only changed in form, the plants cannot be eaten as they will become full of it. They must be trashed. This type of phytoremediation can be extremely effective. For instance, alpine pennygrass is the choice for removing cadmium. And Indian mustard, a very attractive plant, removes lead, selenium, zinc, mercury, and copper from the soil. And you're in luck. 
the plants that have been shown to remove the most coal tar and pitch are sunflowers. That's a very nice fence line plant. Just don't eat the seeds. Well, that sure was some interesting information about creosote remediation, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to give me railroad ties for Christmas if I don't get out of this studio. Well, we must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse, teeming, teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show, and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when his ship crash-landed on Earth and his giant robot accidentally incinerated the nation's capital. Well, at least now they'll stop all that squabbling. Ken Queter, the living legend of South Street, is our musical director. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our sound engineer is always cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work and send her your garden pictures to post at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Teresa Radke is our peerless princess of profound production. The always lovely Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Judicious Jake Boyer does the video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Special thanks. To our beloved band of carnies, fortune tellers, and card sharks, Jacob Morris, Zach Detack, and anybody else hanging out in the control room. Our beloved and bedraggled CEO, Tim Fallon, is preparing an appeal to Santa's listing him on the naughty scroll. I'm creosote free Mike McGrath, and I'll be shredding leaves and cooking amaranth until I see you again next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah.